Psalm 119, verses 49 to 64. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I don't turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night, I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians um, 4, 13 to 5, 11, and that's on page 836. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again so that those who have fallen, uh, so that those with, so that, so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that the, this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? Uh, well, I think last time I was here, I didn't have any hair. Uh, so you might be sort of looking at me going, who on earth is this guy? Uh, I'm the same guy, I've just got a bit more hair on my head. Um, I'm Simon, I'm one of the student ministers here uh, at Church by the Bridge. 
Uh, I just wanted to preface the sermon tonight with, you might have been thinking, uh, what on earth are we reading 1 Thessalonians for? I, I thought we were doing Romans. Uh, that doesn't sound like Romans to me. Um, We're looking at 1 Thessalonians because what's been happening is the morning congregations have been looking at 1 Thessalonians, Paul's away, he asked me to kind of continue on with that series uh, and that's why you guys have landed me with this uh, tonight. Uh, It's a great passage, I don't know if you're reading it and going what on earth is Paul writing about there, people being caught up in the air and things like that. Uh, It's a tremendously encouraging passage. I want to share with you as I've been preparing this sermon uh, over the last few weeks, There are two very dear friends of mine who are currently very close to dying. Uh, They are Christian brothers. Uh, One is a pastor in Adelaide. The other was a guy that worked at Moore College for a long time. Uh, Both of them have fallen dreadfully ill and don't look like they'll survive um, for whatever time they have left. They're both Christian men. So as I was preparing this sermon tonight, yeah, there's tremendous hope for those men uh, as we read these words and I hope that tonight we can gain some of that hope together. If you're a Christian here tonight and you're really anxious, you're struggling in your Christian faith, tonight is a great night to be here. If you're a Christian and you're strong tonight in your faith, you really trust the Lord, I hope that tonight you're just even more encouraged by the the real hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, as I was preparing this sermon, I don't know if you've been reading the newspapers, watching the news. You know, there's that guy, Pastor Yusuf, the Iranian pastor, uh, who is, is imminently facing execution by hanging because he's a Christian. Uh, I was thinking about him, and, and as I watched the media sort of report on this, and you can almost sort of hear the background conversations of people going, why doesn't he just renounce Christ and save his neck? Why, why is he continuing to hold on to Jesus whilst he could just say, okay, I no longer trust Jesus? You know, in, the, in Iran, it's apostasy and it's a, it's a hangable offence to move away from Islam, to give up on Allah. And, and it's hope that keeps him trusting in Jesus and not renouncing his faith in the Lord Jesus. Friends, I want to pray for us as we come tonight as Christians here in Kirribilli as we face life and look to this hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that the good news of your return may thrill our hearts and minds this night so that we may live each day in the light of it, share it wherever we go, Lord, for your glory and your renown. Amen. Amen. One of the great differences between Christians and non-Christians or believers and non-believers when it comes to thinking about the ultimate realities of life, uh, is the contrasting views regarding what happens at the end of our lives, our physical lives here on earth. Bertrand Russell, for example, the great philosopher and atheist, said nothing happens next. He wrote, when I die, I rot. Pretty optimistic. The letter to the Hebrews, however, says this, man is destined to die but once, and then face judgment. They can't be any more different, can they? T.S. Eliot, in one of his famous poems, writes, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. 2 Thessalonians says, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 
to punish those who disobey the gospel with everlasting destruction. They could hardly be any more different, could they? Views on what happens at the end of our lives. What you think happens at the end of the road dramatically changes how you live on the road. For instance, if being a suicide bomber means instant transfer into Muslim paradise to an exalted position as a a martyr for the cause, then it won't be that hard, will it, to find volunteers. But suppose for a moment, just imagine for a moment that you are a Christian and you are receiving severe persecution. Suppose your life is under threat because you're a Christian, your family has just given up on you, they want nothing to do with you, all support from them has just gone, you've been rejected by all your friends, they want nothing to do with you. In a situation like that, I think you'll need to know above all else what lies at the end of the road so you persevere, so that you keep going as a Christian. You know, you've been told that the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll return one day in glory. But you and your fellow Christians are the only ones that believe that in your pagan city. And there's not that many of you. There's no sign of his appearing. And there there are only too many scoffers out there saying, oh, the creation just goes on as it has been from the beginning and will continue to do so. What's the hullabaloo about? And there are your fellow Christians, perhaps, as well, and some of them have died. What's happened to them? Have they missed out on all the good things that are to come? What about if your life is under threat? Suppose you're almost called to make that ultimate sacrifice and die for the sake of Christianity and Christ Jesus. What will happen to you? Perhaps that helps us to see a little bit the picture and the issue of what was going on in the church of Thessalonica. I think it's really hard for us to kind of clamber back into their shoes. 1,900 years has gone by and we've got used to waiting, haven't we, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't doubt its reality. Occasionally here at Church by the Bridge we say a creed where we affirm the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to cbtb.org.au, it's on there. We affirm the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that's going to happen. But I don't think we're actually animated by that very much. Like day to day, are we animated by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ could return tonight? That my waiting for him, your waiting for him, my serving him, your serving him could actually end, you know, once you finish your cup of coffee tonight. We've I think we're more used to calculating the number of days or weeks until our annual leave comes up. Or perhaps we're looking forward to that time when we can finally retire and access our super. That's how we sort of, that's the time frame we're working on. We need to be clear, just like the Thessalonians needed to be clear, about this coming return of the Lord Jesus, our hope. In a world where confusion about death and total ignorance, it would seem, about what happens after death is kind of the norm. Because if we don't get it clear, then we'll, we won't persevere. We'll kind of just shrink back into our little Christian ghetto, kind of end up, you know, a culturally relativist kind of group, theoretical Christianity that doesn't really change our behaviour or our lives very much. 
We're not dealing with something that's miles and millions of miles away from us. This is something that affects us now. It's a a significant doctrine. It's the next big event to happen in the church's calendar, the return of the Lord Jesus. And so that's why Paul, in chapter 4, verse 13, says, Brothers, sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. The crisis at Thessalonica is that there was ignorance about those who died. Apparently, the grieving of the Christians in Thessalonica was actually indistinguishable from that of the pagan world. He says, don't grieve as if like men who have no hope, like people who have no hope, hopelessly. No, we have hope. Paul wants to uphold here that hope is a hallmark of our Christian lives and it's to shape our Christian lives. No hope will mean no perseverance in the faith. No perseverance will mean a sinking church. No perseverance will mean the gospel will kind of die in Greece in Thessalonica and it may die in Kirribilli. What Paul's essentially doing here is saying that Christians should be especially different in the face of death. There's this great contrast that runs through the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians between the brothers and the others. He says in verse four, chapter 4, verse 13, have it open in front of you if you don't. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who've fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest, like the others who have no hope. Here's one area where we can be distinctively different to the rest of the world. A clear and certain hope. It's developed in a fuller way in chapter 5, verses 4 to 8. You sons of the light, you're people of the light, the truth of Jesus. You're not in the darkness anymore. You're not of the night. So live as people of the truth. Live as people who've had their eyes illumined to the the Lord Jesus Christ and to the reality. Don't be like others who are asleep. Rather, be alert, be self-controlled. Expect his coming tonight, tomorrow. Let that shape who you are as a Christian. And that the hope of the Lord Jesus and his return has to transform everything now and for then present and future. There are three statements here. I'm mainly going to look at chapter 4, the verses 13 to 18 tonight. There are three statements here in this passage which show Paul's logic as he helps encourage us to grasp this beautiful truth. And the first one is this. Christian hope for the future is grounded in the past. Christian hope for the future is grounded in the past. Verse 14, have a look at it with me. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus, with Jesus, those who've fallen asleep in him. Paul's argument's really clear. If you believe A, you'll believe B. A is the belief that Jesus died and rose again. That's the heart of the apostolic gospel. That's the good news. That Jesus died for the sins of the world, according to the scriptures, promised from the very beginning of time, spoken of by the prophets. The Lord Jesus came into the world. He died. He rose again. And what God promised, he's come through with. That's the heart of the gospel, raised again. Jesus died. And so the second part of the verse, Christians die. They fall asleep in him. Jesus rose, so we'd expect then that the second half of the verse would say that then Christians rise, wouldn't we? Well, that's the implication, but it doesn't sort of seem to balance that way, does it? 
It says, have a look, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. The resurrection isn't actually the fundamental issue right here. The key issue is how do Christians who've died relate to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice how Paul describes them. Literally, they've fallen asleep in him. The phrase in him is critical for our view of a Christian's death. It was used in secular Greek at the time of people who died. People who died were called, they, they, were, they were told they fell, they fell asleep, falling asleep. But what makes it different for the Christian is where you fall asleep. You fall asleep in Jesus. So the implication is that those who have fallen asleep, trusting in Jesus, are with Jesus. Now, that's the, that's the first big ingredient of our hope. Those who've fallen asleep are in him, in Christ. They're with him. I've got a really good friend in Adelaide. Her name's Sue Harrington. She's married to a, a minister in Adelaide. She's a lovely woman, she's re- and she's really one of these really optimistic, upbeat kind of women. You know, you, you hang out with her for too long, and you just can't help but think life's pretty good. She's a great woman. She one, one day did one of those psychological profile things, which had to fill out a million questions, you know, multiple choice things, send it off, they got to analyse. The result came back for Sue, and the result was mildly depressed. And Sue was like, I'm not mildly depressed. You know, she wasn't... A she, you know, she had compassion for people with mental illness, but she was, I'm not, that's not me. She called the company and said, I want to know why you've you know, determined that I'm mildly depressed. They said, it was the way you answered this question. Do you sometimes wish you were dead? And she answered, yes. Her hope in the Lord Jesus Christ had implications for the way she lived her life on that day and every day. We get hold of that hope we have in Jesus. It changes everything. Paul speaks of this in his other letters, doesn't he? Can you remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 23? I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. It's a lunatic, like a lunatic thing to say, isn't it? Unless you have your hope in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We are confident, I say, says Paul, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. They're extraordinary statements to make unless you have a certain confident hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that upon the moment you die, you will be with him at that very moment because you have died in him. This is where Christian hope begins to pick up, doesn't it, friends? Christian hope for the future is grounded in the past, in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus the resurrection power of raising Christ from the dead, which the world has already seen, will be experienced by all those who are united to Jesus in faith. When he comes, those with Jesus will come too. That's amazing hope. Certain hope grounded in the cross, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing vague about this, nothing theoretical about this. This is real. Is this your hope? Is this your hope? The second proposition is found in verses 15 and 16. The second, Christian hope for the future is centred in the Lord Jesus himself. This is to say that our hope is not just heaven. It is Jesus. 
Paul wants to make this abundantly clear that his teaching comes not with just human authority, but with Jesus' own authority. Have a look, verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. It's a complicated verse, isn't it? But firstly, we've got to, this is the Lord's word. It comes with Jesus' own authority. The one who rose from the dead. His promise. His word. Paul wants us to be absolutely clear about that. He's answering here, however, the specific problem that the Thessalonians were kind of grappling with in verse 15. Those who are alive on earth when Christ's return will not have an advantage over the sleeping ones, will they? It's a very sharp negative in verse 15, isn't it? They will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. The verb their advantage carries the meaning that someone else gains something over someone else and so gets an advantage over them. It's a bit like when you go to Chatswood Chase, if you ever go there. You drive in your car, you see a spot and someone's clunky trying to get their car into reverse and you sneak in. You take advantage of their kind of inability to drive a car very well. That's the kind of, you take advantage. Well, they have an advantage. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says there will be no advantage for those who are still alive on earth. Those who've gone before won't be disadvantaged. Why? Verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. So the coming of this of Jesus with his holy ones will be the day of resurrection. Obviously, it was an issue for debate at Thessalonica. I think it's still an issue for debate amongst us. There seems to be a difficulty in the text. How can the Lord Jesus bring with him from heaven the dead whilst the dead get raised at the same time? How does that work? Well, the coming will be the moment. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his people will be the moment when the spirits of justified men and women who've been made perfect will be reunited, will be united with their resurrection bodies. We need to sort this out in our thinking so we can clearly articulate to people what our hope is. It's not, oh, I kind of believe or hope for heaven. No, our belief is much more than that. Um, It's much deeper. Our hope is that our spirit that resides with Jesus at the moment we die will be united with our resurrection body, miraculously raised by the power of God. And there in that body, the body patterned on the Lord himself, his resurrection body, will be united, spirit and body, bodily resurrection, a body fit for the new heavens and the new earth. That's why in previous generations, the cemetery was called the place of the sleeping, or literally God's acre. Because of what you sow in God's acre comes to fruition. You sow a physical body in corruption, you reap a spiritual body which is imperishable. Chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, that's very clear. Let me take you through it quickly. It's a beautiful passage, uh, a chapter on the whole, the resurrection. Verse 42, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, raised in power. 
sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. It's a resurrection body, fit for the new heavens and the new earth. If there is a natural body, he goes on, there is also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. First man, he was of the dust of the earth. The second man, from heaven. And so also are those who are of heaven. And that's why he brings his saints with him from heaven. In verse 49, And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, all made in the image of Adam, here's our certain hope, brothers and sisters, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. That definition of the resurrection day helps us bind together all the ingredients here in 1 Thessalonians. When a Christian dies, the spirit is separated from the body. That's why at a funeral we lay down the mortal remains, the, the earthly cottage. In the faith, the occupant is with the Lord. The body sleeps, but the spirit is in the immediate presence of God. One day, if you, if, I, if you outlive me, if I die before you guys die and you're reading the Sydney Morning Herald and you see in the death notices section, Simon Jackson has died, please don't believe it for a second because I'll be more alive than I have ever been because I'll be with the Lord. I'll be with the Lord. If you're a Christian and you die, you'll be with the Lord, more alive than you have ever been. That's Christian hope. That is our hope. Christian faith in action. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? Do you know it? There will be this great reunion one day. One day when all the redeemed spirits with the new body will be reunited and all of God's people will be gathered with the Lord. What a reunion. Much better than my school reunions have ever been pales into significance. I mean, they're not even worth thinking about. They're often not worth thinking about. This is worth thinking about. What a great hope. That is the day we belong to. If you're a Christian, that's the day you belong to. What a hope. Is that the hope you want to share with people in Kirribilli? I heart Kirribilli. Don't you want to tell people we have real hope here? Hope that changes your life for the future, but it changes it now. It gives you confidence now that you can face death with confidence. Verse 16 stresses this. It's all initiated by Jesus, our Lord. Have a look. It's all about him. The Lord himself will come down. He'll descend. Just as he ascended, he'll come back. The same Jesus. His voice will raise the dead. He'll send his angels out to the four corners of the earth to gather the elect. His voice summons the trumpet. He calls the dead out from their graves, the dead up from the sea. Great and small. Summoned to the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. This great reunion. The dead will rise. And those who are alive will then meet with Jesus as well, gathered together. This is Christian hope centered on Jesus. 
this is, of course, friends, totally supernatural. If you're a Christian, you believe in the supernatural. It's basically, we don't have this kind of experience in our day-to-day life. I didn't experience this this morning. It will happen. The Lord promises that it will happen. If we believe in Jesus, we'll be caught up with him. And lastly then, Christian hope for the future is realized in the heavens. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Thrust of this great verse and the great assurance that we have, friends, is that nothing can stand in the way of this happening. Nothing can stand in the way of this being realized. Do you know that? The living church will literally be, that the translation is snatched up. It's sort of this picture of violence and suddenness will be snatched up. You know, the passage that the Apollo, chapter 5, talks about Jesus will come like a thief in the night. Unexpected, sudden, violent, bang, Jesus is here. And the church, the living church, will be snatched up to Jesus and caught up with him in the air. The irresistible power of the Lord Jesus Christ will reunite all his people, living and the dead ones, in the air. Now, what on earth does that mean? I thought it was really apt that uh, Mike read Ephesians chapter 2. Remember at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, we are all dead in our transgressions and sins as we once followed the prince of the air. The air in the Bible is a picture of where the demons kind of operate. That's their zone. That's their realm. Where Satan directs traffic. That, that's his realm. Where, do we, where does Jesus meet us? Right on their ground. Smashed. No, they can't stand. The Lord Jesus Christ will meet his people, gather his people in the air that nothing can stand in its way. Nothing can stand, nothing can stop this from being realized. Back in chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, I really would love to have come to you again and again. I really would love to have come to you, but Satan stopped me. Satan stopped Paul from visiting Thessalonica. He can't stop Jesus coming with a cloud, with authority to gather his people. No, he can't stop. He's defeated. What hope? This is unbelievable. This is not unbelievable. It's believable. It's awesome. Praise the Lord. We will meet our Savior in the air. And nothing, nothing can stop it. Friends, picks up in, picked up in Romans chapter 8. Let me just quickly flick there with you. Romans chapter 8. We're going to get there one day at this church, I think. This is beautiful. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have a look with me. Uh, Verse 35, chapter 8. These are words, friends, that we have to hold on to as Christians. They relate directly here to this passage we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Who? Paul goes on, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
says Paul. In all these things we are more, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. Do you believe these words? Can you share in Paul in these words? I am convinced. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. Prince of the air, dead, gone, smashed. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Praise Jesus. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. They're not my words, they're Paul's. But I want to take them tonight. I want you to be encouraged by these words. Is this the hope that shapes your life? I feel for a lot of us that if Jesus kind of turned up today, 21st century Christians, we'd be a little bit, come on man, like it's the wrong time. I'm working on something at the moment. Like, he could come back. Is this what shapes, if I was to peer over your shoulder at work tomorrow morning, would I look at your diary, probably not tomorrow, you're probably having a bit of a day off, but Monday, peer over your shoulder, would your diary be kind of shaped by this hope? Would your kind of thinking about what I'm going to do with my life be shaped by this hope? What if you're serving the Lord Jesus? What if you're waiting for the Lord Jesus ended Monday? We've got to be shaped by this truth, friends. It's got to compel us to reach the lost, that we have something to say. When our world looks upon death and goes, I don't know what happens after, we say, we know. And I'm not saying it's easy. This would be a pretty hard truth to just turn up at coffee on Monday morning and sort of sidle up along your colleagues and say, hey, you know when you die, I'm a Christian, I, you know, when, I, when you die, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with my Lord, caught up in the air. They'll look at you and sort of go, this is the last macchiato I'm having with you. It's not easy. But it's got to shape our lives. And it's got to be what encourages us to persevere. Like Yusuf, Pastor Yusuf in Iran. Why doesn't he just renounce his faith in Jesus? Why doesn't he just say, okay, I'll just escape the hangman's noose? Because he has a certain hope that leaving this body is far better to be with the Lord. Can you join Paul in that? Can you join Yusuf? I'm assuming Yusuf's thinking like that. Friends, encourage each other with this. Be alert. Be self-controlled. And speak about this. Live this. When you're anxious, know that you'll be with the Lord one day. When you're strong in the Lord, know that you'll be with the Lord one day. And remember, it's all about Jesus. And that's what we want to tell our world. Encourage each other with this. What great hope. Let me pray. Let me pray. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him.
Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for these words which lift our eyes beyond the things that press in on us every day and make us almost think as though the present is our only reality. Father, we praise you that you continue to forgive us when we are so myopic. Please focus again our faith and love for Jesus and each other because of our hope in the coming, the certain coming, the sure coming, the absolute realised coming one day of our Lord. We pray this for Jesus' sake, for his glory. Amen.